DiscerningHearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study presents Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon Doran, along with her husband Steve, are founders of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, whose mission is to actively seek truth and raise up disciples for our Lord Jesus Christ through an in-depth Catholic Bible study. Sharon, who holds two master's degrees in education and in pastoral theology with an emphasis in sacred scripture, is an experienced Bible study teacher for over a decade. She has a passion for scripture that motivates and challenges her students to immerse themselves in God's word and apply his message to their everyday lives. We now begin the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran. Hello again, everyone in Discerning Hearts Land. I am just so very happy to be with you here today as we discuss the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our study of the Synoptic Gospels, we are looking at St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. Luke, and the way they see together. And so that's what the word synoptic means, to see together. Now, last time we looked at St. Luke's infancy narratives, and this week we're going to turn to St. Matthew and his recording of the life of the infant Jesus. So Luke had a Marian perspective. As a non-Jew Assyrian from Antioch, St. Luke has a real universal approach to his gospel writing because he knows well that salvation is for all. He's not a Jew. And he's a physician. And St. Luke is especially interested in Mary's perspective. After all, as a physician, a virgin birth is, is highly irregular. It usually does not happen. But Luke himself, full of the whole Holy Spirit knows that this is definitely the case with the mother of our Lord. She will experience a virgin birth, and she too was full of the Holy Spirit, and she gives her full consent to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and to conceive the eternal life into her own virginal womb and to bear the everlasting word of God to the entire world for all time. So St. Matthew is a Jewish male, and he comes at things from a Jewish male's perspective. So he, it would be natural for him to look at St. Joseph. And how is it going to be for St. Joseph to actually be a Jewish father and actually to be the father to the Son of God? So I'm really thankful for Matthew's Jewish perspective. I am thankful for both of these saints, Matthew and Luke, and their gospel writings that they recorded because they came at it from different perspectives so that we, uh, 2,000 years later, we can piece together the pieces and have a greater understanding of the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Blessed Pope John Paul II called Matthew's gospel the catechist gospel because it's just so packed with information, as you will soon discover as we open it up here together. But the book begins with the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ, and genealogies were a very, very important part of life in the Jewish tradition. So please listen now. Just let the Holy Spirit guide you into all truth as you listen to this next lecture of Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study on the Synoptic Gospels, The Birth of Jesus Christ, Part 1. Good evening. Remember this uh, cartoon, Meet George Jetson, da 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 His boy, Elroy, da 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 
daughter Judy, da 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 da. Jane, his wife. Okay, good. And then they all zip through. Tonight we're going to meet the Herods. <laughs> meet the Herods. Okay, the Herodian dynasty. And it's confusing because there's the Herod five in the scriptures. There's five Herods, and it's easy to get them mixed up. The father's not in there, but the one who started it all was Antipater the Amudian, which is the land of Edom. They're Edomites. And when he died, his son was Herod the Great, who did all the wonderful building projects. And he's the one that was there with the wise men. When the wise men came, they visited Herod the Great. And then he died, and his successors were his sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Now, they each ruled a different region, and the ones we're concerned about are Archelaus and Antipas. Archelaus was in Judea and Samaria and Edom, and Antipas was in Galilee and Perea. So when the eldest son, Archelaus, is ruling, he really is like his father. And Joseph is warned in a dream to not go back to this region because Archelaus is ruling there until 6 AD. So Joseph does not go to this region, and instead he goes up to Galilee, where Antipas is ruling, the other brother, who might be a little milder. And so it's Herod Antipas that rules from 4 BC to 39, and he is the one responsible for beheading John the Baptist and presiding over the trial of Jesus. And I misspoke last week, so I wanted to clarify that. It's easy to get him confused. Herod Antipas is the one Jesus Jesus comes before in trial, and he's in Herod's jurisdiction, so Pilate says, hey, he's not my problem. He sends him back to Herod, remember? And then Herod has never seen him before, this Herod, so he's curious about him, and he wants to see him. Finally, he says, I, I don't find him guilty of anything, and he lets his guys ridicule and mock him and put a robe on him and a crown of thorns, and they send him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod Antipas and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. But something they agreed on was that this man is not guilty. And Pilate will tell the crowd that neither has Herod. He sent him back to us. He wants to wash his hands of this. Uh, but that's not what happens because the crowd has other ideas. The other Herod in Acts chapter 12, we meet another King Herod. And this is the one that beheads James, the apostle. And he also imprisons Peter. And his name is Herod Agrippa I. And he beheads James, and when that goes over well with the crowd, he also imprisons Peter, but there's a miraculous jail escape in Acts chapter 12. That's Herod Agrippa I, and he was the grandson of Herod the Great. And then the last one we see in scripture, this one also, Agrippa, was eaten by worms. He's struck dead and he's eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12. And then Herod, Agrippa II, Paul will come before him and stay in his palace when he goes on trial. So that's in chapter Acts 23. There's another Herod, and that's Agrippa II. So it's just, it's kind of like splitting Herods, or splitting Herods. But it is important to know. Now, each of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, has a little different take, a little different perspective. Last week, we saw Luke, and only Luke and Matthew have the infancy narratives. And last week was Luke, and that gave such a beautiful account of Mary's story. Tonight, we will be in Matthew's Gospel more. It's a narrative that will give us more Joseph's perspective. Joseph was a first-century Galilean and the son of Alphaeus. And Rome started occupying this area in 63 BC after the conquest of Pompeii. Matthew was a tax collector and he collected taxes in this region for Herod 
Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. So he lived up in Capernaum, where Peter lived, and Jews who became rich in such a way, taking money from their own people and giving it to Rome, were not popular. And he would have been very literate, though, in Aramaic and Greek languages. This beautiful Caravaggio is at St. Luigi in Rome, the call of St. Matthew, the play on the light when Jesus comes in and calls Matthew the apostle. Beautiful painting. Also, the martyrdom of St. Matthew is there, as well as the inspiration of St. Matthew. You often see Matthew pictured with an angel because the early part of his opening gospel, there's a lot of dreams and there's a lot of angels. This is one of my favorite statues, the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome, and it's Matthew, the tax collector, with this big tax book, and he's standing on a big bag of money. Matthew's gospel, some say, is the Bible study for dummies. Why do we say that? Because he gives us these fulfillment quotes. There's 10 of them in there where he tells us point blank, hey, this took place in order to fulfill this. For instance, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Then he tells us what Isaiah 7:14 said exactly word for word. The virgin will give child. So he, he gives us these hints, blatant hints, but it's really not for dummies as you will see how much is packed in just the genealogy alone. Pope John Paul always said that Matthew's gospel is the gospel, his favorite gospel to catechize with. It's the catechist gospel. There's so much packed in there. So tonight we're going to look at Jesus' birth and childhood in Matthew 1, 2, and Luke chapter 2 from Joseph's perspective. It starts with the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew 1, it starts like this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word genealogy in the Hebrew literally means the genesis of, the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. Now that takes us right back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 in the Dewey Rhymes translation says, these are the generations of heaven and earth. This is the genesis of heaven and earth. These are the generations of. God is doing something new. There was an old covenant, now there's a new covenant. There's a new genesis, a new creation, a new genealogy. And it is the book of the genealogy or the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Interesting that he starts with the son of David since David chronologically comes after Abraham. But he starts with David because Matthew is a kingdom gospel. He wants to tell us about a kingdom. And David was the greatest king in all Israel's history. But guess what? There's a new king in town. And it's going to be a way different kingdom and a way different crown. This is a statue of King David in the Basilica of St. Mary Majors in Rome. And there's also a window with the stump of Jesse. Isaiah 11 said, a shoot will come from Jesse. And from its roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jesse is King David's father. And this will be the royal line, and the one on top is Jesus Christ. Now, some kings visit in this chapter of Matthew. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the reign of King Herod, Magi, this is Herod the Great, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. They are archaeologists, they are wise men, they've been traveling for months and months and months and months because of the star. The heavens are telling the glory of God. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star led them to the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And they came into the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, 
and they bowed down and worshiped him. These kings from the east, these wise, wise, learned men have come for months and they bow down to this baby in a cave. Joseph's kind of in the background here. It says his mother, Mary, she's a new queen. This is a new kingdom at hand. And kings are coming to worship from the far eastern lands. And they opened up treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Huh. Gold, incense, and myrrh. Okay, I get gold, I get incense. You know, they didn't have those diaper genies back then. But uh, myrrh, what is myrrh for? Myrrh is of narcotic qualities. They offer Jesus myrrh. In Mark's gospel, they offer wine mixed with myrrh when he's going to be crucified, but he does not take it. He will not numb the Father's will. What else is myrrh used for in the Bible? It's used for burial, kingly burial. In fact, you'll remember that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh for this kingly burial of Jesus Christ. Who would bring a baby, a newborn baby, a burial spice? Hmm, that's odd. The other mention of myrrh that blew me away in scripture is it's the spice of the bridegroom. And seven times it's mentioned in the Song of Songs. And I'll just read one of them. Lover, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. My sister, my bride. Hmm, remember that. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Friends, eat. Oh, friends, and drink. Drink your fill, oh, lovers. You lovers of God, you Theophiluses. Eat. The bridegroom's here. It was the groom's job to prepare the feast in this culture. Samson was, was uh, it, it tells us in Judges that Samson made a feast as was customary for the bridegroom. Jesus answered them in Matthew 9, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. Myrrh is a bridegroom's spice. And Jeremiah 33 says, the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Huh. A bridegroom, a new bride, a new groom, and a thank offering, a Eucharistic feast, a marriage supper of the Lamb. This is our mass. That's what the mass is, where heaven meets earth. It's a feast. It's a thank offering of the bride and the bridegroom. This is a new kingdom. This is a new church. The star that led them is of interest to me. I used to teach high school science. I can't get into it all right now, but if you go to the website, thestarofbethlehem.net, Rick Larson will take you through some very interesting facts because the cosmos knows the heavens are telling the glory of God. The cosmos knows. Just as at the day of crucifixion, the day of the cross, the cosmos knew. The red moon, the earthquake, the black sky, the eclipse for three hours. The star has led the wise men. Day after day, the stars pour forth their speech. And night after night, they display knowledge. The stars know. The bright star guides the holy family. And the bright star will guide the kings for months and months and months to the place. Also in the night sky, in the pitch black, were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now David, the king, King David, greatest king in all the land, was first also a shepherd. 
Shepherds, sentry laders, are watching their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appears to them. The glory of the Lord shone round them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, what did the angel say? And they were sore afraid. Do not be afraid. But this time, it's because I've got glad tidings of great joy for all people. All people. Did you get that? All people. Not just the Israelites, for all people. This is a worldwide greeting. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So all are invited to this Feast of the Bridegroom, the greatest and least, the greatest of kings and the lowliest of shepherds. All are welcome. David, King David is both. Jesus Christ is both. David is a good shepherd. Jesus is a good shepherd. David was a good king. Jesus is an eternal king. Then he mentions Abraham in the genealogy. See, this was just the first line of the genealogy. See what's packed in here? Abraham, you'll remember from last year in our study of Genesis. In Genesis 12, he's called from Ur, land of the Chaldeans. And God tells him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And all families in the earth will find blessing in you, Abraham. All people will know blessing through you, through your seed. And he says again to Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield. And Abraham says, but we're barren. I, a son from my own body. But Abraham believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Mary also believed. When the angel came to her, blessed is she who has believed. In Genesis 22, now Abram is asked to take that son, that son, that dear son, the one he loves, and go to the top of Mount Moriah. And there he is to offer him as a sacrifice unto the Lord. And he's obedient, and he trusts God, and he does what God says. And the angel stops him. Stop! I see. I see that you are going to do it. And he says, I will surely bless you. Through all your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me, Abram. Now, there are some commonalities between Abraham and Mary, and sometimes we don't see them because he's a man and she's a woman, and we don't compare the two. But they are both told, do not be afraid. They both believed. They both hold a son of promise in their arms from a supernatural conception. Both Abraham and Mary have a son of sacrifice. They will both carry the wood of the offering on their back, uphill, and they will both know in advance that this is going to happen. Abram's told to go sacrifice your son, and it's a three-day journey. And on the third day, they get there. Mary knows in advance because Simeon says, a sword will pierce your heart. Hers will be a 33-year journey, this divine number three. And on the third day, he will be raised. And a sword will pierce your own soul, too. In fact, she will have a perfection of suffering. There will be seven swords that pierce her heart. Both Abraham and Mary are asked to sacrifice a dearly beloved son, but both will trust God's plan. Both sacrifices will take place at the exact same location on Mount Moriah. Interesting. Now on Mount Moriah is that rock, the Dome of the Rock, sits a temple over the rock, the rock, where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, where the crucifix was. And the Islam religion says Abraham was sacrificing Ishmael. And the Jews say, no, no, no. Abraham was sacrificing Isaac. 
And the Christians say, we think Abraham was sacrificing Isaac as a prefigurement of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the same location, the once-for-all sacrifice. So, book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. First line. <laughs> Why is the son of David titled first? These were the glory days of Israel. Glory days. This is glory days for Israel when David is reigning. Israel had the land, Israel had the temple, and Israel had the king. Before Israel had kings, there were judges that ruled the land for about 338 years to 385 years. The very last judge was Samuel. In the cycle of the judges, what would happen is Israel would do evil in the eyes of the Lord. God would punish Israel. Israel would cry out to the Lord. God would raise up a judge, and Israel would be delivered. And it happened over and over and over and over again. The final judge is Samuel. Hannah's baby. Hannah prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for a baby. Remember, he took the Nazarite vow. The Philistines had captured the ark when Samuel was a little child. The glory had departed from Israel. The ark is gone. The Philistines had the ark. They were parading it around like a trophy, a war, a trophy of war. They took it to Ashdod and Gath and Ekron. But as long as they had that ark with them, sickness followed them. When they took it to the first town, the statue of Dagon, their god, was crushed when they put the ark near it. In the second town, what shall we do with this ark? It's causing problems. It's causing destruction everywhere they took it. Um, great destruction. It smote the men of the city, both small and great. They had emeralds in their secret parts. <laughs> and then again to the next town. They have brought it out the ark of the people to Israel to slay us and our people is killing them. And those that did not die were smitten with the emeralds. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now we have a lot of doctors in here. Doctors, what is an emerald? In the Hebrew lexicon, an emerald is translated hemorrhoid. <laughs> they were getting emeralds in their secret places. Doesn't God have a sense of humor? You don't mess with the ark. No Philistine city wanted the ark. And finally, after seven months, they returned it. They put the ark on two cows and sent it off. They wouldn't get rid of it. And these two oxen walk to Beth Shemesh, which is a town of Jewish priests. And the ark has been returned. They see it coming in the distance. Two oxen carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And some of the men run to look. And they open it up and look inside. And 70 of them are struck dead. 70 men are struck dead. Because they didn't reverence the ark. And they looked inside. Hmm. The ark was finally moved to the city of Bala, a town nine miles west of Jerusalem. And King David and all of Israel will eventually go to Bala and move that ark and bring that ark home to Jerusalem because David really, really, really wants to build a temple for the Lord. He dances in front of the ark because he knows the presence of God is inside the ark. And we talked about last time, but I didn't tell you this one little link that when Elizabeth sees Mary and she cries out in a loud voice, it says she exclaimed, Elizabeth exclaimed. That verb is anaphaneo in the Greek, and it's only used one time in the entire New Testament, anaphaneo. But it is used six times in the Old Testament, and every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's in reference to the ark always to describe the ark, truly present in the ark, the true presence of God. And almost always that verb is used by Levitical priests. Now we know that Elizabeth is exclaiming the true presence of God in the ark of Mary's womb. And what tribe of Israel is Elizabeth from? 
the priestly tribe. She's a daughter of Aaron. She's a Levitical priestly daughter. So that's very fitting. Now, before this, King David, after the judges, Israel's clamoring for a king. All the nations around us have kings. Why can't we have a king? We want a king. We want a king. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And God had given them a warning about kings in Deuteronomy chapter 17. You don't want a king because kings are going to tax you and kings are going to have multiple wives and kings are going to have lots of horses. It's going to be, it's not, it's not going to be good. But they want a king. So God gives them King Saul. He's the first king of Israel. Things weren't going so well. There's a big problem, and it's called the Philistines, a nine-foot problem called Goliath. And David, this little boy with his slingshot, says, I'll go fight him. I'll be your servant, King Saul. Because David loves the Lord. Blessed be David. He's a head crusher, too, because he slays the giant and cuts off his head and brings that head back to King Saul. He cooperates in the salvation of Israel. I see a lot of Mary and David similarities. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. St. Jerome told us that. But Jesus Christ is truth. Truth sets us free. Truth is waiting for you. Seek Him, and you will find Him. And the door will be opened unto you, the door to your heart. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open that door up to Him today. Let Him sup with you. Let Him get to know you. Get to know Him. Respond to Him. And you will live eternally. Ignore Him. Shut the door. Keep it closed. And stay on the path to destruction. That's the choice. Until next time, keep seeking truth. Truth has a name. His name is Jesus and he stands and knocks at the door of your discerning heart right now, just waiting for you to open the door so he can come in and abide with you. Until next time, keep seeking truth. You've been listening to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. To learn how you can become a participant, either online or in a classroom setting, of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, 
go to SeekingTruth.net. This has been a production of DiscerningHearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. Join us next time for Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.